As we go to God's word, let's ask him to open it for us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear and read and learn and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's Word to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we're considering a series through the book of Philippians, and we've come to chapter 3. Our text for the sermon will be verses 7 through 11. Uh, But to remind ourselves of the context of these verses, I want to begin my reading at the beginning of chapter 3. So beginning at chapter 3, verse 1, and reading through verse 11. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church." As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. What we have in this passage is Paul's testimony as a Christian. Um, I don't know what you think of when you think of someone's personal testimony. Um, Not every personal testimony is a bad thing. Um, We shouldn't regard it that way. We sang Psalm 66 to begin our service, and that was reminded of the psalmist's testimony. Come and I'll tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. Um, It's not a bad thing to recount with gratitude what the Lord has done for his people. Um, And Paul is giving something of his testimony. Um, But maybe we're used to testimonies with it major on the facts of how God reached out and turned us to himself. Uh, The the, the facts of what I was and what I've become and how God has worked. Um, And Paul's testimony here is of a little bit different sort. 
It's not so much of the events that surrounded his conversion that he recounts, but it's more of the mind of the Christian, uh, how Paul's mind works, how Paul's mind functions, and he testifies to us as a Christian how the Christian mind ought to work when we reflect on Christ and reflect on the things of God. Um, And that's Paul's testimony to us. Um, Testimony as a Christian, showing us how the Christian mind should work and where it should be focused. And the Holy Spirit providing us this this window into Paul's mind is helpful for us in knowing what our minds ought to look like as a Christian, uh, what the Christian mind should do. And it's seen in uh, three things, you'll be surprised to hear, Uh, three things we see Paul's mind being revealed to us. We see the Christian's devotion Um, In what Paul says, we see the Christian's desires as Paul expresses them, and we see the Christian's destination that Paul hopes for. Um, And this is a window to us of what the Christian mind looks like and how it should operate. The Christian's devotion, the Christian's desires, and the Christian's destination. Um, The Christian's devotion is the first thing we see from the Apostle Paul uh, beginning at verse 7. Um, his devotion. And where should the Christian's devotion lie? Well, a Christian should be devoted to Christ. Um, Now, maybe you don't even write that down because that's so obvious that it doesn't deserve writing down. And maybe the real cynics among you might even think that I need to wake up and get dressed up to come um, and to hear this, uh, that Christians ought to be devoted to Christ. Um, well, the, the fact of Paul's devotion is not so much, uh, the, it shouldn't be a surprise to us, the fact that Christians ought to be devoted to Christ, but what Paul reveals to us is the extent of that devotion, uh, shows us what that kind of devotion really ought to look like. Uh, Paul clearly has fixed Christ and a relationship with him as the foremost thing in his mind, as the most important thing to him. And that comes across clearly in verses 7 and 8, that this is the most important thing to Paul. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Uh, It's not surprising, it shouldn't be surprising that a Christian ought to be devoted to Christ. Um, what maybe is surprising is to see the level of devotion that Paul expresses in the Lord, that everything else is not worth thinking about, that everything else is worth giving up for the sake of having him, uh, that that's what the devotion of the Christian is, is fixed on, the surpassing worth of Christ above all other things. And that's worth meditating on. That's, I think, worth taking time to think about because that's what's hard in this world is to see Christ clearly and to fix our eyes on Him and to put all of our value on Him against everything else that the world has to offer. The world makes it so difficult for us in many ways to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and to keep in mind the fact that Christ is everything. Um, Calvin expressed that when he said, we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that eternal life fades from our view. And the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation 
which they deserve. Um, I think he's exactly right. The things of this world condemn the realities of who Christ is and what we have in Christ. And when we can clear all those things away by the help of the Spirit and see Christ clearly, we know the value that he possesses. Um, Boys and girls, Jesus told a parable that helped us to understand just how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. Um, And he told a parable which he basically said, imagine you were out somewhere digging in a field and you uncovered a rich treasure. Millions of dollars in gold and jewels, let's say. But you know that the treasure didn't belong to you because the land you're digging on doesn't belong to you. And Jesus would say, what would you do if you were that person? Well, you would do whatever you could to get possession of that land. Because you know the value that's hidden there. No one else might know the value, but you know the value. And so what will you do to get it? You'll sell everything that you have. You'll sell everything you have until you have enough to go buy that piece of land where you know that treasure's buried. And once, you know, once you've bought the land and you know the treasure is yours, you'll go with joy to take possession of it. Um, Jesus was much more concise in the way he put all that. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He has one focus on that, you see, because he knows the value. He knows the value that's there that other people can't see. Um, maybe you've seen the movie The Maltese Falcon. It's an old movie based on a Dashiell Hammett novel, and um, it all centers around this Maltese Falcon, not surprisingly. And uh, the Maltese Falcon, what it is, is it's a rich, it's a gold statue that's richly covered with jewels, but somebody painted over it with black enamel. And so there's only a few people in the world that know that it's a really valuable statue. And the whole movie is about people trying to get their hands on this statue. Because to most people, it just looks like an ordinary black statue. But to the people who know, they know its value is priceless. And that's what Paul is saying he's come to realize about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's priceless. That he has a value above everything else in this world. And that there's nothing in this world that can compare with him. And anything else you have, you should be willing to get rid of and lose if it means gaining him. And that's what Paul says. That's what Paul's come to in his life. That's his testimony as a Christian. He's come to understand that and to rejoice in that. The value in Christ and to devote himself entirely to Christ. And that's what comes across so clearly to us in verses 7 and 8. Everything I've had, I counted as loss. And I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. Um, In the way he says that, he's doing something very interesting in moving from verse 7 to verse 8. Verse 7 is all in the past. You notice that in the way that he talks in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There he's talking about his past experience. That's what I did. I counted it as loss. And I think in that he's referring back to earlier in this chapter, the things that he used to take so much pride in. 
the things that we talked about last week. He was so proud of who he was and what he'd done. Um, until he came to understand one day that who he was and what he, did, what he had done didn't have any value. Right? And, and where was he made to see that clearly? It was on the road to Damascus where Saul at that time, the Pharisee, was zealously going out to persecute Christ Jesus and his members. Um, And he realized that all of those things he used to take so much pride in, who he was and what he'd done, had no value. And he counted it all as loss. I think that's what he's referring to in verse 7, his past. I counted it all as loss. And now Paul's writing here some 30 years later, um, we might say, has it been happily ever after for Paul? Right? Did, did he come to Jesus and everything is okay now? Everything's perfect, it's all sunshine and rainbows ever since he committed his life to Jesus? No, I mean, he's writing this letter from prison. Right? He probably needs to dictate it to someone else because he's got two Roman soldiers chained either side of him. And we might be tempted to ask, Paul, is it still worth it? 30 years ago, you counted everything you had as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Was it worth it? That's why it's so important to see in verse 8 that he's speaking now in the present tense. He's not speaking just about life as, as Saul the Pharisee. He's now speaking about life as Paul the Apostle in chains for Christ. And what is his testimony in verse 8? Um, has his zeal for Christ dimmed at all? No, as he moves into the present, what does he say? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In the past, I counted what was gain as loss. Now I count everything as loss. Indeed, it's rubbish. That's the biggest term for garbage he can think to use. I count it all as garbage if you're going to compare it with what it is to know Christ. In these 30 years that have happened between his conversion and the time of his writing now, there's been a lot that's happened to him. There's been a lot of difficulty that he's faced. There's been a lot of heartache in the service of Christ. And yet, what what do we see by this testimony? He's continued to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. He understands even better now the value of what he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants to communicate. His devotion to the Lord is undimmed. It's only intensified through all the struggles and all the difficulty that he's faced. Um. And he wants to share that devotion with the Philippians because he knows that they're going through difficulty and struggle. And he wants them to understand that Christ is worth it. That Paul is more convinced now than he's ever been that Christ is worth it. Um, That's his devotion. That's what he wants his church's devotion to be. And by the Holy Spirit's grace, that's why that letter has come to us. So that could be our devotion as well so that we can understand clearly this world has nothing to offer us in comparison to what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing else out there that's as valuable as he is. In fact, everything else should be gotten rid of if it means 
obtaining Christ. That's Paul's devotion, and it's that kind of devotion that leads to his desires as he expresses them in this passage. So the Christian's devotion then leads to the Christian's desires. What is it that Paul wants above all else? He has this great devotion to Christ, so what does he want as a result of that devotion? What does he want? He wants to gain Christ, he says, and to be found in him. Um, If his devotion is to Christ, it's not so surprising that his desire is for Christ. That I would gain Christ and be found in Christ. That's his first desire as he expresses it. And to help us understand what he means by that, he goes on to express what it means to be found in him. Paul says, I want you to understand clearly what it is I desire as a Christian. It's not just a general idea to be in Christ, but something in particular that he draws our attention to. What does it mean to be to gain Christ and to be found in him? Paul says, um, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but what comes from that which comes from comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What does it mean for Paul to be found in Christ? It means to be found in the righteousness of Christ. Not in the righteousness that comes from the law. A righteousness of his own. The righteousness that he used to be so proud of. Right? He had said just, just a couple of verses earlier, as to the law, blameless. Right? But he says, that's not what I desire to be found in anymore. In my own righteousness, in my own estimation of blamelessness. That's not what I want to be found in. And he's not speaking hypothetically here. He's speaking from experience. He knows what it is to be found with only a righteousness of his own. Right? Go back to that Damascus Road experience. Saul the Pharisee, zealous for the law, eager to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, looking to go persecute and see executed people who've committed their lives to Christ and sure that he's serving God by doing it. And one day he's riding on the Damascus road and he's blinded by a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to him and asks him, why are you persecuting me? And what happens to Paul in that moment? He knows what it is to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and to be found with a righteousness that's his own according to the law. And in that moment he comes to know just how insufficient it is to stand in your own righteousness before the righteous one. And to try to have some kind of hope in that moment in your law keeping. Paul is not talking about a hypothetical situation. He's saying, I've been there. I've stood before the risen Lord in a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And trust me, brother, you don't want to be there. You don't want to have that experience. Because what you immediately find is you need something else than what you have. And that's what he's coming to the Philippians and saying, what is my desire not to be what I used to be? 
not to put my hope where I used to put my hope. And a hope that will utterly disappoint and fail in that important moment of standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we'll all have to face that moment that Paul faced. Right? There, there are very few things as a pastor that you can say that you can guarantee will happen to someone. Right? That list is fairly short. We all experience different things in this life. There are very few things you can guarantee to everybody you talk to will be true. I can guarantee everyone who's hearing me today that this is true. One day you will have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. One day you will have to face the judgment. And there are two ways to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. In a righteousness that's your own, that comes according to the law, and you will be weighed in the scales and found wanting, as Paul was on that road. But there's also good news. There's another way to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's in Him. Having a righteousness that's not your own, but that becomes yours, not by your doing, but by faith. It comes by faith. Um, Paul can't be more clear about that in verse 9 than he is. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. How does that righteousness become ours? It becomes ours by faith, by faith in Christ. That's a righteousness that will stand in that day. Then you'll be weighed in the scales and not found wanting. Because our Lord Jesus Christ was weighed in the scales and not found wanting. That was the testimony that was heard from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he was raised from the dead in testimony that death had no power over him that his sacrifice on the cross for us had been received by the Father. That he paid for our righteousness and gives us his righteousness. That great exchange that we thank God for. To have his righteousness accounted to us. So that we're treated as if we'd been just like Jesus. love how the catechism puts it in question 60. That means that when God looks at us, He looks at us just as if we had never sinned or been sinners. And just as if we'd been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. And how does that, that, all of that righteousness become ours? The satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of God. How does all of that become ours? If we accept that gift with a believing heart. It comes to us through faith. And the news gets better because it's not even a faith that we have to come up with. It's a faith that's given to us as a gift by God. Paul says that's where you want to be found. That's his desire. All I want is Christ. All I want to be is found in Christ. Having a righteousness that's not of my own. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. His first desire is to gain Christ and be found in him the righteousness of God. 
And then what does Paul want more? To know him and the power of his resurrection that he might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Uh, there, there are three parts to how Paul wants to know Christ more. Uh, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to become like Christ in his death. Um, now, now, maybe the order of those things doesn't surprise you or strike you as odd, or maybe you haven't thought about it much at all. Um, but imagine I were to give you three slips of paper, um, one that said Christ's sufferings, one that said Christ's resurrection, and one that said Christ's death, and said to you, now put them in their proper order. Now, boys and girls, even you could do that, because you would say, well, I know my Apostles' Creed, I know the order those things belong in, suffering, death, resurrection. Um, and normally you'd get an A on that. But Paul wants to shift the order, and he does it for an important reason. Um, where does he begin? Not with suffering and death, but he begins with resurrection. That's the first thing that Paul wants to really make sure that he understands. The power of Christ's resurrection. The power that Christ's resurrection has shown us over his death and over sin and death and hell in the world. Um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be overstated in its importance in cosmic history, its spiritual importance, its importance for all of God's people. It signals that everything that was has been changed. Everything that used to be true has now come to an end. Um, it promises a new hope and a new future for everyone who is found in Christ Jesus. Because the one sure thing that's been true ever since the beginning of the fall was that people die. And people die on account of sin. And when you die, you stay dead. But here comes one who dies and then he rises again from the dead. Uh, triumphant over death. Triumphant over the curse that causes death and brings death. Triumphant over sin. Triumphant over hell. He testifies to us that everything now is going to be different. Because there's power in that resurrection. It's a powerful testimony to who Jesus Christ is and the new order of things that he brings. Right? Paul celebrates in other places the power of his resurrection by saying that resurrection, that first fruit, that harvest from the grave speaks of a great harvest that's coming. It's not a solo event. It's the first event that promises a big future. It's the small rocks falling before the avalanche. It's promising big things are going to happen in the future, that everything has now changed. God's people have to live in that hope. That's why Paul starts with the end. He starts with the hope. He starts with the resurrection. We have a Lord who is powerful over death. Um, I love the beginning of Revelation when Jesus stands there and says, Behold, I was dead, but now I'm alive. You know, that, that's such an easy thing for us to read over and not contemplate the weight of that. Behold, I was dead, and now I'm alive. And I'll, now I'm the boss of death, because I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. 
Christ's resurrection changes everything. And Paul says, if I want to be like him in his life, I have to recognize that power. Because to follow him means to suffer. That's, I think, why Paul starts with the power of his resurrection. Um, Because Paul knows what it is to suffer. And he knows that if God's people are going to endure suffering, they have to endure by the power of his resurrection. To know that as we suffer as the people of God, it in no way diminishes the power of what Christ has done and is doing and will do when he comes again. It's knowing the power of his resurrection that allows me to share in his sufferings, Paul says, and even if I'm called to, to become like him in his death. Paul shares in the sufferings of Christ. Um, As Christ's body on earth, we are all filling up his sufferings. The church is his body and we suffer in this world. We're called to suffer in this world. We're called to sacrifice for him in this world. Some, like Paul, have been called to sacrifice unto death. To become like him in his death. To be a witness for Christ by dying. What Paul says is so important for us in thinking through the Christian life. How do we find the strength to suffer? How do we find the strength, if it need be, to die in sacrificial service to the Lord? What's all comes from the power of his resurrection. To know how things end. To understand very clearly where the destination of God's people lies. And that's the final thing that Paul brings up to us. Not just his devotion, not just his desires, but the Christian's destination. The place he knows he's going. So in verse 10 he says, So I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Christians need to understand that a call to follow Christ is a call to sacrifice. It's a call to suffer. It's a call to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, Jesus said. Servants aren't greater than the master, he said. They... They hated me and they killed me. What do you, what do you think they're going to do to you? Right? That's the reality of this life is that we suffer. That we may even be called to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what was the end? It was resurrection. It was life. That's the destination. Um, that's where Paul knows that he's going. Um, he's not unsure about that reality. Right? We, we might wonder, what, he, what does he mean by, says, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is he not sure about where he's going? Is he not sure how he ends up? No, I think what Paul is saying, what all of us have to wrestle with in the Christian life is, I know clearly where I will end up, but I'm not sure how the road will wind as I get there. I'm not sure what valleys of suffering I'm going to have to go through on that road. I'm not sure what peaks of joy await me on that road. And all of us are at different points on that. Right? There are some of you who come here today, and if I ask you how things are going, you would say, pretty well. I mean, I think things are, I'm on the, I'm in the peak of joy right now. 
Maybe we're too much a Calvinist to ever really be on the peak of joy, but we're at least on the upward slope, maybe. But there are a lot of us who are also in the valley of grief, in the valley of despair, in the valley of the shadow of death. And that's what Paul is saying, right? He's saying, I'm in chains for the gospel. I'm surrounded by people that hate me and are preaching the gospel intentionally to hurt me. I'm not sure how this all ends up for me. I think I'm going to get out of jail this time, but there might be a time coming where I don't get out of jail. I don't know how the road is going to wind, but I know where I'm going. I don't know how the road winds, but I know how the story ends. I know where this leads in the end. It leads to resurrection. It leads to an end of the ups and downs. Right? That, that's the hope of the Christian, is in resurrection. Not just in dying and going to heaven, but resurrection. To be with the Lord where He is, and to be like Him, to see His glory, and to live in that kind of life, that uninterrupted joy, that uninterrupted perfection. That's the hope of all Christians. The fact that there is a resurrected man in heaven now tells us that heaven is a place for resurrected people to find their peace. And Paul's saying, I I don't know the means by which I will get there, but I know that I will attain the resurrection of the dead. I know that that's where this story ends. And that became clear to Paul in his life. At this moment, as he writes to the Philippians, by God's grace, it became clear to him in some of his last moments, as he recounts to Timothy, it didn't mean things were going to go well from him from here on out. We read in 2 Timothy 4.16, we're nearing the end of the peaks and valleys on this sermon too, but um, I want you to not miss this. Things did not always go well for Paul, and there was a time that he felt very alone. Um, I'm always really struck by his words in 2 Timothy 4.16, where he said, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. You think for everything that Paul gave to the church, and then in his moment of need, the church was not there for him. There was no one there for him um, from the church. But what does he immediately go on to say in the next verse? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. When everyone else deserted me, the Lord stood by me. And not just stood by me, strengthened me. So I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. And then what was the confidence in which he lived? Some of the last words he probably wrote, recorded in Scripture. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If we want to share in his sufferings and be willing to come, be, become like him in his death, we always have to keep clearly in our minds the destination. Uh, that this life does not end with suffering and death. This life ends in resurrection, in hope, in glory. 
And what the Holy Spirit wants us to take away is to be able to live in that same confidence, to have that same devotion to Christ, to have that same desire to gain him, to be found in him, to know the power of his resurrection, to share his sufferings, to become like him in his death, and to know where this life ends, to know where the Christian is going, that the end of this story is resurrection, that what was true for Paul will be just as true for us. The Lord will stand by us, and he will strengthen us, and he will bring us safely from every evil deed into his heavenly kingdom so that we would say with Paul to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for all that he has done for your people, how he has given himself for us and even now intercedes for us at your right hand, how he's coming again soon in glory to deliver us from this present evil age. Help us in the midst of the things that we suffer to always lift up our eyes to him in the midst of all of our sorrows and persecution to eagerly await the one who has already suffered and died in our place. To know that if we put our faith and trust in him, we will have his righteousness. We'll have nothing to fear on that day when we stand before him. Uh, that when he comes to judge the living and the dead, he won't come to judge us, but to declare us innocent in him, to bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom, how we look for and long for that day. Help us to be devoted to you, to count all of the things of this world as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing him. And help everyone here to be found in him with a righteousness not of their own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is yours. Help us to find these things in Christ, to hold fast to him by faith, and help everyone here to obtain, by your grace, resurrection from the dead and life everlasting. Amen.